From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Los Angeles is facing serious financial problems as tax collections are way down and expenses for COVID-19-related services are high. We'll talk with Mayor Eric Garcetti about his proposal for furloughing civilian city employees and for other cuts as well. Also, Huntington Hospital infectious disease specialist Dr. Kimberly Schreiner returns for our daily coronavirus update. Does it seem many Angelinos are starting to bristle at the stay-at-home order and now gathering with others more frequently? Newport Beach residents would answer yes after seeing the crowd at their beaches on Saturday. It's Air Talk right after NPR News. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us wherever you are in Southern California or as we see in our growing amount of online traffic listening around the world, kpcc.org or on the KPCC app. Coming up in just a few minutes, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti will be with us to talk about a couple of big things. Of course, obviously, we'll focus on COVID-19 and the city's measures to deal with the spread of the coronavirus, but we'll also talk about the very challenging L.A. city budget. The mayor's made his budget proposal, which calls for furlough days for civilian L.A. city employees. Uh, That's something that we might well see with a number of other Southern California cities who are also dealing with that problem of severely diminished Uh, tax receipts, and extra expenses taken on because of COVID-19. But we begin today, uh, a guest we've had on many times during the course of our daily updates on COVID-19, Huntington Hospital in Pasadena, infectious disease specialist, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner, welcome back. Thank you so much, Larry. Nice to be back. Give us a sense at Huntington of, of what the feeling is there uh, are you seeing any sort of change over the last few days in COVID cases uh, or uh, patients who have died from COVID-19? Well, it's been kind of a plateau. We've had a steady flow of, of inpatients, <clears throat> and we are seeing, you know, we still unfortunately lose some patients uh, to this disease, which is just a tragic situation for everyone. Um, I would say we haven't gone over the other side yet. We're not seeing a marked decline. We're still at a manageable level for the hospital. And, of course, uh, like many hospitals, we are now pondering the idea of starting some not so elective but slightly urgent surgeries in the next few weeks. So I think the hospital's capacity is still challenging, but it's manageable, and, and we're able to kind of keep up the uh, the pace here. And do you know if uh, staff, uh, staff uh, hours have been able to be kept fairly consistent, or is most of the staff working longer hours than they would have been before this? I think most of the staff is working pretty much the same number of shifts. Um, you know, the nurses tend to work 12-hour shifts, um, which is a standard uh, uh, quantity for them. Um, the physicians, you know, are sort of on their own in terms of how much they're working. Many, many of them are working long, long hours because it's just difficult to maintain, uh, you know, the, the supervision of these patients. But, um, you know, we're all, we're all coping, and I think we're trying to make sure that people get some rest and get some re- relief from it. Um, 
you know, it's very taxing emotionally uh, and certainly intellectually, and it's very challenging with all of the paperwork. Huntington is an expanded access site, so we do have access to some of the novel treatments, including uh, convalescent plasma and uh, some of the investigational drugs, and that requires a lot of paperwork and so forth. So there's just a lot of challenges and a lot of moving parts to this. And and describe, if you would, the convalescent plasma. What uh, what is that treatment, and how is that being studied? That's a, it's an actually a very old treatment. Um, it's been used before for other types of infectious diseases. And basically, what it is is you harvest the antibodies, which we think, although we don't know for sure, are protective um, for um, coronavirus. You harvest those antibodies from people who have survived coronavirus. And some of the early data came out of China, of course, where most of our early data comes from these days, but now we're beginning to see some of it here in the United States. Those antibodies, uh, predominantly IgG, which is the later antibody, uh, is more protective, and we infuse it into individuals that are very, very sick. And the idea is, is that uh, those protective antibodies will circulate and kind of, if you will, gobble up what, uh, what's going on with the virus and try to get people through the crisis period so they can, uh, they can survive. It's been met with some success. Um, uh, unfortunately, we do use it often in patients that are very advanced, and so sometimes um, the, it, the convalescent antibodies are not able to really uh, do the trick. But um, they do look promising. It's a, it's a cumbersome uh, type of therapy, although it's, it's just an infusion. And one of the things that we, have, of course, like all things in this disease, is that we have a huge uh, supply shortage. So we'd encourage anybody who has uh, survived coronavirus to please consider donating to the Red Cross. Uh, they're, the, they're the service area that's um, uh, maintaining the bank of, of convalescent plasma. And so I'd encourage people to go on our website or any website for the Red Cross. And if you survived coronavirus, please make a donation. Is there a reason for not using it before patients get to that very late stage of the illness? Are there negative uh, effects of it? Or is it just there's just not enough of it to use it with the broader uh, population of people with the coronavirus? Yeah, it's just it's the latter, Larry. There's just not enough of it. And that's that's been the story sort of with all of the real treatment, the effective treatment modalities or what we at least think are some of the effective treatment modalities, including remdesivir, the antiviral, is that because it's not widely available, it's reserved for the sickest of our patients. And uh, so I do think that some of these therapies will probably prove to be quite efficacious in uh, earlier treatment in patients who aren't as sick, but we just don't have enough of it to to spare that, and we have to try to save the people who are in the most dire need. If you have questions for Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, infectious disease specialist at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. Dr. Schreiner, uh, following up on, on the infusion of, of the antibodies, the World Health Organization said over the weekend there's not evidence that recovered coronavirus patients are immune from uh, being reinfected. And um, I wonder if you can speak to that and sort of take that statement apart. Well, I think what they're trying to say is that it hasn't been well studied. Um, you know, we I think there's a lot of uh, individuals uh, in the public in general that's taking a great deal of comfort in the fact that, gee, if I get it, I won't get it again. And we just don't know that uh, right now. You know, everything that every day that goes by with this pandemic, we learn something new and we become more uh, facile at dealing with the, the virus itself. But I think that the antibodies, we think they're probably protective, but we don't know for sure. 
There certainly have been cases, uh, widely reported once again in the Chinese literature, but beginning to emerge in our own country of individuals who appear to get it a second time. Now, that may be that they didn't mount very good antibodies the first time around, and we do see that with other viruses such as influenza. But I think we have to be very cautious going forward that these antibodies are protective. And there, you may have seen some stories about um, governments that are looking to have some sort of identification for people who have survived and presumably have protective antibodies and employing them first into the workforce. And it seems like a sort of a good idea, except we just don't know if the antibodies are protective at this point. And the final thing is that it's possible that having had coronavirus might sensitize you to the virus itself. So the next time you get it, it's worse. And that would be a calamity. We do see that with some unusual viruses such as dengue. Um, we don't think that's going to be the case with this virus, but we don't have enough data right now. It's just, uh, you know, I'm struck by how day after day with all the experts that we talk with, there's just so much that we still don't know about it. And it's hard because we're all craving information. We're craving a degree of certainty about how the virus behaves and, and sort of what the rules of the game are here because the stakes are so high health-wise and economically very high, too. And it's it's just very ha- hard, um, I think, as you know, humans, for us to sit with that gap, Dr. Schreiner. Yes, I mean, we, we want, we, I think human beings have a, a great sense of control. And, and, you know, our science is very good these days. And um, in infectious disease, you know, we've made enormous strides in, in dealing, very challenging, dealing with very challenging diseases such as HIV and Ebola and so forth. And I, I, I'm confident that we'll get this one under control, too. But we need to have good science to make good decisions, and that's where testing is so very important to get an idea of what, how much the virus is out, th- how much of the virus is out there. Uh, both testing uh, for active disease and also testing for antibodies, and then really doing some very good studies on whether the antibodies appear to be protective. And I think you know this is a brand new pathogen for human beings. None of us on this planet have any immunity to this, and so um, how it behaves and how it moves through different populations and how it affects different populations and what are the risk, the true risk factors for this disease. We're still beginning to put some of that information together, but we're very, very early on. JSK writes on the page, do blood banks screen for antibodies uh, given that there can be asymptomatic infections? Uh, not for antibodies for coronavirus. They screen, obviously, for HIV and hepatitis and, and so forth, but not for. they don't routinely do it for uh, coronavirus at this point. So could that be a potential risk for someone who's getting a blood transfusion that they could end up having the virus passed on to them? That's a very interesting question. And like so many things, I don't think we know the answers to that. I mean, we would hope that someone who was feeling ill would not think that's a good time for them to go and donate blood. On the other hand, there do appear to be many people who are asymptomatic, and we always have a shortage of blood. So I think that that's of concern. This virus appears to be, you know, a respiratory virus and is not uh, transmitted through uh, blood and body, flu- uh, body fluids other than respiratory fluids that we know of. But again, we just don't know for sure. So um, I would say that, that the blood banks, uh, you know, do a very good job screening for pathogens that we know can cause a disease. So I My hunch is that it's probably not going to be a factor in blood transfusions, but we just don't know. We're talking with infectious disease specialist Dr. Kimberly Schreiner of Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. She's going to be continuing with us later this hour, answering more of your questions about COVID-19. We appreciate that very much, but let me bring on to the show right now Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. Mayor, thank you for being with us today. Hi, Larry. 
Larry. Thanks for having me on. Uh, first of all, let me ask uh, how how you're doing with uh, the undoubtedly very long hours you and your staff are putting in. Um, how are things How are things going in the Garcetti household? We're, we're hanging in there. Thank you for asking. I know it's been tough on everybody, and we haven't taken a, a day off. I think last year I didn't take a day off till till June fourth uh, anyway. But given this year, it's even longer hours. And thank you for mentioning my staff who have just been doing. A heroic job in the midst of this. Well, let's talk about what's to come here. Uh, we've we've now got uh, a number of states that are starting gradually to allow non-essential businesses to reopen. Um, some, not all of these, are in states that have comparatively had uh, a lower uh, rate of coronavirus among the population. What's your sense here in Los Angeles that when we can start easing up a bit? and allow some of the non-essentials to reopen? Well, my, my sense is probably in the next two to six weeks, we'll see some baby steps forward. You know, it's so critical to have a few things in place. It's not really about a date or how few cases you have. It's about the infrastructure you have to handle opening up. Um, so the good news is the bad news here. The good news is, and thank you to everybody listening, what we've been doing has worked. It has saved thousands of lives. Um, but the bad news is that means... According to the USC prevalence study, we have about 96% of us that could still get this. And if we opened up the wrong way, we could have by August 1st, 95% of us with COVID-19. And I don't have to tell you the tens of thousands of deaths that would cause. So it's really about scaling testing, safeguarding Angelinos, and still continuing to stay at home probably for the majority of things that we do and for the majority of workers. But seeing those numbers come down, testing those for two to three weeks, seeing if there's a spike, if not, take another step forward. So it has to be a kind of a series of sequences, but um, certainly the federal, state, county government, and we're trying to assist them, really need to focus on making sure we have the people to track and trace and the testing to make sure we know what the prevalence is and the infectiousness at any given time. Uh, as I'm sure you know, a lawsuit has been filed uh, by attorney Mark Garagos representing seven businesses suing yourself, Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, and many other public figures over COVID-19 closures, claiming it's a civil rights violation uh, to engage in these closures. Your response to that suit? Oh, you know, I respect uh, the legal system, but you look around the world, this is not something unique that we've just done in Los Angeles. Um, From country after country after country, we saw what happened in Italy. We've seen what's happening in New York, or even on a good day like today, um, they had, you know, 300 plus deaths in a single day. Um, I think people understand uh, that this is not only under everyone's emergency powers, but about not what the government imposes, but what we do for ourselves. And uh, it's critical that we save lives, and secondly, that we rebuild them. And um, I'm as focused and as um, anxious to do that as anybody, and spending a lot of my long, long hours on figuring out how we can do that safely. So hopefully it'll be a, an irrelevant point when we all begin to open up, begin to manage the infection, control our hospital capacity. But I'm not going to let people die uh, simply because folks feel that we need to be wide open. We're talking with L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti with us on Air Talk. Would you see a point where you would call on law enforcement to uh, cite people who are out in public or recreating over the weekend? We saw in Orange County some beaches where it appeared people were distancing. Newport Beach residents were saying that they were overwhelmed with people. Could you ever see in Los Angeles going to, to that extent of citing people? No, that's not my preferred vision, and it hasn't been from the beginning of this. Well, we've had to cite some businesses, for instance. That comes after, you know, five, ten visits from 
business ambassadors who are not police, police letting people know, you know, then we can shut down things like water and power. But we did have, you know, um, police officers on horseback and some, you know, at, the, at Venice Beach, just to let people know it's really about educating people. It's not about trying to give people in these tough times a fine or arresting people. Obviously, where people are reckless, uh, somebody who's infectious and trying to spread that disease or something like that, we have all sorts of options. But no, I think this is only going to work when we all buy into the vision, which is why I've spent so much time communicating the importance of this. And then we use the city workers and volunteers and our crisis response team and, and our police officers sometimes to let people know. And we certainly do have that option, but that is not my preference and that's not my vision. We're talking with Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti with us on Air Talk. Let's let's turn to the city budget where you released your proposed budget last week, the day after the State of the City address. And not surprisingly, Los Angeles, like other cities throughout California, suffering a huge uh, decrease in tax collections as people aren't out spending money. Uh, at the same time, you've had um, many uh, additional expenses taken on as a result of COVID-19. So let's talk about what's proposed here. Um, with um, more than $200 million in cuts, you've got furlough days for civilian city employees. Is there the potential that you would have to go above the, what is it, 26 days here that you're proposing? Sure, there's the potential it could get worse and there's the potential it could be better. This is a good snapshot. And, and as I told people, a budget this year, and for folks who are listening, our budget starts July 1st and goes 12 months. So the budget that starts then, this will be the most dynamic budget I think we've ever had. We'll probably be reassessing it every two, three weeks, um, looking at what is the federal reimbursements for all these extraordinary costs, like the testing that we're doing, like the shelters that we've stood up, like the work that we're doing to make sure that people are safe and helping Angelinos get their basic necessities like meals. So we'll have to look at what the feds will reimburse, what the state will give us. Um, and we'll have to see about how we can best manage, as I've been telling everybody at the county and the state and the federal levels, the sooner we get guidance on how to reopen, the sooner we can reopen, the more it could change the, the financial situation for the city. Now, the good news is we put a lot of money away in our reserve funds, about double what it was when the 2008 Great Recession hit. The bad news is this will be worse than the 2008 recession. I mean, we're talking 20% unemployment. We'll see how long that lasts, but it's not going to be a an instantaneous recovery even as things begin to open because this will be probably a year, year and a half before there's a vaccine where we'll have to manage this. So I hope that we can see rosier days. I'm prepared if we see worse days. And what I did do is we didn't cut any service. We just took a haircut in all of them. That seemed to be the fairest way. We as city employees, myself included, took a haircut in terms of our salaries and furloughs. We all took a haircut in terms of programs, but we didn't abolish anything. And secondly, we made sure we prioritized that which is the most important right now, the testing, the COVID-19, uh, sanitation, cleaning buildings, making sure that we can prepare people for that reopening. I think those basic things of health, safety, uh, making sure our firefighters and police officers can continue to respond to this emergency, that we 
drew a red line around it, and we preserved. Uh, Los Angeles, like so many cities, dealing with a significant increase in public employee pensions. Um, and you've got the required contribution by the city increasing dramatically, almost year to year. And um, so the question is, with, with you know, you've got, what, one and a third billion dollars that has to be the city's contribution for pensions coming up next year. How, in declining revenue, does the city also meet this demand to be able to keep the pension fund viable? Sure. Well, I'm very proud since I've been mayor, actually, that's been steady. It hasn't gone up in, in year to year as a percentage. We've gone, in some years, it actually went down, and that's reflected not only um, our discipline, but sitting down with our labor partners and we've doubled or tripled the individual contributions into their pensions, which was a smart and right thing to do during the Great Recession. And I was proud to do that when I was city council president. But second, you're right. One of the things I said before this started is we've gone maybe half or two-thirds of the way of the pension reforms we need. But we're going to have to sit down, and I'd like to have a pension you know, commission come together to recommend to the city and with our labor partners as a part of that, what can we do to make sure long-term sustainability Public employees often earn less because of the benefits that they get. Um, they count on that for their families, the health care when they retire. But also you can't let those costs go more up than the revenues. Today it's about 15% of our budget goes to that, which is pretty reasonable. 85% goes directly towards services and, and things that we buy and 15% to cover that. But whatever we can do to control that means more services to people and ensuring that our employees uh, do get what they by law deserve. Mayor Garcetti, thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it and look forward to talking with you again soon. Strength and love to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti with us on Air Talk. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner of Huntington Hospital in Pasadena, and we'll take your questions about COVID-19 and the public health response. We're at 866-893-KPECC. We do have some breaking news. This morning, the Orange County Fair Board uh, met and voted to cancel this year's Orange County Fair. So that hugely popular event at the fairgrounds in Costa Mesa in July canceled this year due to COVID-19. We'll be back with more in one minute on Air Talk. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti, just with us on the program. And we're rejoined now by Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, infectious disease specialist at Huntington Hospital. Dr. Schreiner, a little bit later this hour, we're going to be talking about whether people are starting to get impatient and gather more outside, whether people uh, are getting sick of foregoing haircuts and starting to, uh, you know, on the down low, um, uh, you know, get that haircut and things like that. I think there is the public perception that um, the vast majority of cases of COVID-19 are older people or people who are younger but have underlying health conditions and that when they look at the risk reward, if there's someone who's under the age of 60 and they're in excellent health, they figure they'll take their chances uh, in many cases. What would you say to that? Well, I don't think the data support that uh, entirely. I mean, there's no question that older people, and sorry, it's kind of hard to define what that is, but certainly people uh, above in the eighth and ninth decades, uh, maybe in the 70s as well, and people with comorbidities 
um, are at higher risk for having either acquiring the disease or having a bad outcome if they do acquire the disease. But I think if you look at a lot of the epidemiologic data in the United States right now, that the sort of idea that this doesn't affect younger people is not true. It's a substantial number of individuals between the ages of of 18 and 40 uh, that come down with this disease, and many of them have very serious episodes of it. So I think that that kind of complacency is um, not supported by the data, and I think we all have ways of dealing with this. Denial is a very powerful entity in human nature, and we are social creatures, and everybody's itching to get back to their previous lives. I, I think our lives are, are going to be forever changed by this, and there may be some very good things that come out of it, but I think for right now it's very hard to get people to sort of, when, especially when the weather's so nice, to get people to stay in and really pay attention to how serious this is. And what we don't want to see is another spike. Uh, that would get people's attention very quickly, but at the cost of many lives, I'm afraid. And I, and I understand what you're saying, but I think I think it's hard for us as humans to consider something, what you're describing, comparatively low risk or comparatively low rate of getting it. But uh, but um, the stakes are high if you do get it because people, as you're describing, can be very sick. We've had reports of younger people getting uh, life-threatening or life-ending blood clots. So you do have, uh, again, these may be, you know, small number of cases statistically, but the outcomes are so terrible that um, I think it's harder for people, though, to look at that and say, well, that could happen to me. I think so, too. And it's interesting how, um, you know, I think that if, you, if, this, if this virus's name was Ebola, I wonder how people would behave. They might be in a little bit different um, fear factor. And I think that early on there was a lot of sort of dismissal that this virus was going to behave like influenza and so forth. And, and in truth, you know, it is a respiratory virus and it is transmitted the same way. And many, many people die from influenza and people don't get too excited about that, unfortunately, although they should. Um, but I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of sort of magical thinking, perhaps, with some of this. One of the things we really don't understand is the inoculum of uh, virus. If you get a very large inoculum, or you're exposed to it continuously, as people that work in grocery stores, or as healthcare workers, or as bus drivers, um, or as when people are living in close quarters with other family members who are infected, they're just repeatedly exposed to the virus, and that may dictate uh, how bad a course they have if they become infected. So. There are so many factors with regard to this particular um, uh, pathogen that we don't understand yet and are very important to kind of begin to collate that data. And we can do that as we go forward. I think uh, Mayor Garcetti, who's done a superb job, has uh, outlined all the many scientific things that we need to look at to sort of take baby steps forward. And we will do it. But it's so important to be informed about this to protect people going going forward. Uh, New York Times reporting that uh, last week doctors on Long Island in New York started treating COVID-19 patients with estrogen to boost their immune system. Uh, this apparently based on the idea that uh, on the observation that men have had a much more difficult time with COVID-19 statistically than women. And uh, the Times reporting that net, next week, doctors here in Los Angeles will begin uh, starting to treat male patients uh, with progesterone, uh, which is uh, has anti-inflammatory properties. Your thoughts about uh, using those experimentally? Well, again, I think I'd like to see a, a, a well-controlled uh, study at some point to really make a um, comment on that. I think there's no question that women seem to have uh, do better, and that's true for many infectious diseases. 
But what that factor is, is it hormonal? Is it the presence of a second uh, X chromosome? Uh, we know that women tend to get more inflammatory diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and so forth because their immune systems are, are sort of ramped up because they have children, and that's something that has to change the immune system. Um, but the use of um, hormonal therapy is not without risk. Both estrogen and progesterone can cause blood clots, and we know that this disease um, produces blood clots on its own so or, or it causes a hypercoagulability. So I think we have to be very careful going forward uh, interesting um, scientific or in, bit of information that came out last week is that the same receptors for uh, COVID in the lungs, the ACE2 receptors, are also present in testes. And so perhaps that, uh, that organ is a, is a safe harbor, so to speak, of the virus, and it allows the virus to continue to replicate uh, in men. So I don't think we really understand what it is about gender that uh, makes men at higher risk. They also smoke more and may have more problems with obesity and and so forth. So um, it's such a complicated thing. I would be a little careful going forward, just sort of haphazardly giving people hormonal therapy, because it certainly does have some risk with it as well. Larry in downtown Los Angeles asks, how much of the population would need to be immunized so that you would have herd immunity? So uh, herd immunity, um, what you want to do is to be able to have, um, we talk about this number, the r naught which is the uh, ability of the virus to infect other people. And to um, have good herd immunity, you want the r naught to be less than one. So in other words, the virus, uh, there's just not very many hosts uh, that are receptive to the virus. And so it depends a little bit on, um, on the sort of demographics of the population, how much social distancing is going on and so forth. Um, in a situation with uh, a large community that's practicing social distancing, uh, you may need to have a little bit uh, more herd, herd immunity before you begin to open that up. In other words, right now, since we're doing such a good job flattening the curve, as, as Mayor Garcetti said, many of us are not immune to this disease. Um, but the problem is, is that um, so in that situation, you want to make sure that the population has a little bit higher presence of antibodies and protective antibodies before you open things up. Um, in uh, populations that had a very high exposure, for example, New York City, they may have fairly good herd immunity, but the cost, of course, is just horrific. And you can't just sort of do this avalanche approach. There's been sort of some talk about some of that where you just open the gates and let people mingle. But this disease has so many really dire consequences and, can, you know, as we can see, it can overwhelm the healthcare system so quickly. Why is it so difficult to get more detailed data on people um, that have died of, of COVID-19? You know, we see these sort of... Um, big picture things about the race or ethnicity and, and we get some age demographics. But, you know, it'd be so much more helpful to have something that would tell you whether the person was out working as an essential employee and did the person have comorbidities contributing to their death from COVID-19. These would all be very helpful to get us a sense. You get these sort of numbers about race and ethnicity, for example, and you don't really know what that represents. We know that um, people of color are overrepresented in the essential services fields. We know about the comorbidity being more prevalent, but wouldn't it be helpful to have more specific information so you could do a, a, a more accurate analysis? 
Absolutely, Larry. And I think you've, you know, it, the problem is there's just so many moving parts to this. And you're absolutely right. There are so many intricate factors that, that play into this. And, you know, we are gathering that data. That, you know, part of the problem is just a huge shortage of public health officials. I mean, that's, uh, that uh, division of our services in the United States has been decimated. And, you know, the burden on some of these people is just enormous. Uh, Dr. Yingo, who's our uh, public health official here in Pasadena, she's you know working 24/7 with a re- relatively small team, and they're trying to gather that data. What is it about certain individuals that make them at higher risk? Is it is it their occupation? Is it their living situation? Is it poverty? Are there genetic things? We know know that, for example, with HIV, that certain receptor sites. Uh, increased people's risk of acquiring HIV, and if they didn't have them, it protected them. So I think that that kind of data will begin. It's this confluence of science and epidemiology and uh, sociological studies that we can look back on, and we can take little pictures, little windows in the next few months to try to begin to collate that data, and that may give us some direction in terms of how we open up society uh, in an expeditious way. We're talking with Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, infectious disease specialist at Huntington Hospital. Coming up a little bit later this hour, in just a couple minutes, in fact, we'll open up the phones to hear from you. What What's your perception? What are you seeing with people adhering to the stay-at-home order? Uh, is it your sense that, that people are starting to react to cabin fever, starting to do things that have been warned against by public health officials? And I'll be interested to hear from you about how you think it's best that we manage that. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, as we talk with listeners about how they're experiencing this now uh, almost six weeks in to the stay-at-home, safer-at-home orders that we have experienced. Dr. Schreiner, I want to thank you again for being so generous in your time and joining us during this portion of Air Talk. We wish you good health and also all the best with your patients that you're working with. Thank you very much, Larry. Very pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner, Huntington Hospital. And earlier this hour, we spoke with Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti about uh, the latest developments on COVID-19 here, as well as the huge economic pressures the city is facing as a result of providing COVID services and seeing tax revenues with a huge decline. It's Air Talk on KPCC. We'll be back in 90 seconds. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. I so appreciate your being with us, listening each day, whether it's to the app, whether it's your smart speaker at home, online at kpcc.org, or you're out in your car listening on good old FM radio, whatever way it is. Well, it's just uh, you and me. We talk now during the course of this next 20 minutes or so. If you were out on the beaches that had uh, opened up in Orange or Ventura counties over the weekend, I'd like to hear what your experience of that was. Uh, how observant were people of the mandate to keep physical distance from people in other groups? What did you see? Uh, if you're a resident of those beach areas, I'd like to hear what you saw in your community with people coming to where you live. 866-893-KPECC. 
866-893-5722 or the Airtalk page, kpcc.org. It's a chance for you to report what you saw. Also, I'm interested in what have you been seeing or hearing from your friends and family members? I've been just hearing anecdotally about some uh, hairstylists who are now going to clients' homes and cutting their hair, even though that's something that you know people are not supposed to do during this time. Um, the people are willing to take the risk because they just can't take the fact uh, that their hair is looking the way that it is. Uh, there are other people who are on the down low. Uh, you taking advantage of other services they're not supposed to be using during this time. Have you been seeing at-home parties that are large? Um, one of my co-workers here at KPCC uh, was sharing with me that across the street from his home, there was a huge party on Saturday night. Music blasting, bunch of people getting together, and no social distancing. Have you experienced that? 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page kpcc.org. Alex in Los Feliz says, I just got back from the grocery store. Everyone was in masks, but almost no one was trying to maintain social distancing, even the employees. And they got annoyed at me when I asked them to wait so I could get out of their way. And there was a ton of traffic. I don't think people will follow the guidelines until we have another spike in cases or deaths. And I don't think even police tickets would help. That's Alex in Los Feliz, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. My wife went to the market early on Saturday morning. And she said, uh, you know, people were were distancing. They were limiting how many people could go into the store. But there were a couple of aisles at the market where, for whatever reason, uh, people had congregated. They apparently all wanted what was in that aisle. And so she just backed away because she felt the people weren't distancing enough. Everybody was masked. But, um, again, I'd be interested in what you're observing. Part of this is kind of understandable human nature, and, and that is— We've been at this now for close to a month and a half, and people are looking at no fixed date when this ends in the future. Not surprising that people would get kind of itchy about getting out again and getting tired of the restrictions. But, of course, we know there are significant risks associated with that. 866-893-KPECC. Let's talk with Christopher in New Hall. I understand you went to Santa Barbara to the beach over the weekend. What was it like? Yeah, so we were uh, went to the Summerlin Overlook in Santa Barbara. Yeah. The Carpinteria. Um, a majority of the adults that were there in the 40s and 50s, small groups, maybe with a couple of their kids, widespread apart, a good 25, 30 feet between each set of beach blankets and everything. But right at the entrance where you first come down the ramp, there had to have been an umbrella every five feet no one caring, kids swimming over each other in the water. The 20 and 30 year olds just really don't seem to take it seriously where the rest of the adults that were around, you could tell we're starting to get irritated. They're not, the dogs aren't on leashes. They're just running around and having to chase them. So you can really see that it's a generational thing that people, the younger people really don't think that they're um, susceptible to this. And uh, the research shows that they, uh, they're just as equally susceptible as anybody with any other age condition. So, um, 
Just- yeah, they're just looking there. They're assuming if they get it, uh, they'll be asymptomatic or their outcome won't be serious. And as we we're doc- just talking with Dr. Schreiner about you know, some of the, the young patients who um, come away with permanent physical damage. And, of course, not all of them survive. Christopher, I appreciate you sharing. So did you end up leaving earlier than you thought you would? You know, we actually ended up staying for over eight hours. Um, we were we had walked down a quarter of a mile or so from the entrance to the beach, and we never had anyone down in our range that was within 50 feet of us because once you got down to the, the further south portion of the beach, you could tell that, that people were building camps to be isolated from one another. And then by 11 or 12 o'clock when all of the 20- and 30-year-olds managed to make it to the beach. You could see that they just didn't care. They could go right to the entrance. There was no one there, and they just set up camp and no care in the world. Wow. It's so funny. By the time, by the, time the younger people got there, of course, uh, sleeping in on the weekend. Christopher, I appreciate you sharing what you observed uh, in Carpinteria there in Santa Barbara County. 866-893-KPCC. Jenny in Silver Lake says, Saturday night, there was a huge party in my neighborhood. Um, it was going on all night. I could hear it from down the street. You could tell there were a ton of people there. Chris in Burbank says, I went to Huntington Beach this weekend. There were hundreds of vehicles in close proximity. Only a few people wore masks, which shocked me. That's Chris in Burbank, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Let's talk with David in Santa Monica. Good to have you with us. Hi. So I just wanted to mention a few things that I've noticed. Uh, one, my hairstylist, uh, right after the stay-at-home order went in place, uh, she actually texted me asking me if I'd be interested in at-home services. Uh, I denied that just because I was uncomfortable, offered to uh, just prepay her for my next haircut. But as far as this past weekend goes, I actually have a friend who's a doctor working with corona patients. She just recently got diagnosed with COVID-19. And then a week later, went on vacation to San Diego and was posting all about it on uh, her Instagram. Wow. Yeah. So she feels like, you know, she's medically clear now, but, you know, I think eight days later she was out. So people are getting sick of staying at home. Yeah, David, I appreciate your your sharing that. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to the hairstylist um, who's like so many people not making any money at all. And, um, you know, I'm sure there are many hairstylists feel like, look, I'm I'm trained. I know how to sanitize a space. I can mask up. Uh, the client can mask up. We can cut down on, you know, what the risk is. Um, but, of course, you're working in close proximity when you cut someone's hair. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Let's talk with Ami in Newport Beach. Ami, I understand you're an ER doctor. What did you see in Newport over the weekend? Hey, Larry. So the beach was completely packed full of people. Like you said earlier, it was just like 4th of July. Um, I'd never seen so many bikes parked at the end of the streets, and people were mostly in their groups social distancing, but nobody was wearing masks. And, um, you know, if we people keep staying out at the beaches on the weekends like this, we're going to have a second peak, and people got to be really careful and take the social distancing very seriously. At the same time, you, I'm sure you understand emotionally why people are getting out there. 100%. I feel stir-crazy as well, and I actually appreciated in Newport Beach they weren't closing some of the surfing areas. 
because that's my one release when I get back from a shift is to relax and go surfing. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was only a couple people out there, and it was uh, last weekend was actually really busy and really crazy. If if we could get people to socially distance at the beach, and obviously if you just get too many people, you can't. It's physically impossible. But if if you could control the crowd enough and and get people to observe physical distancing, would you be okay with the beach being open? I think I would, actually. I think it's actually one of the better places to be able to social distance and kind of get some relief from your house. So I would be okay with relaxing the restrictions a little bit. Um, But, you know, we're in it for the long haul. People have got to realize, you know, once we do get back to work, it's going to be wearing a mask, cleaning all the time and kind of changing lifestyle a little bit. All right. Uh, Ami, thank you. And also, thank you for your work as an ER doc. We really appreciate it. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. We'll continue with more of your comments. What I'm asking is your account of what you're seeing when you were out in the world. If you were out of your house Saturday and Sunday, what did you see if you're out at the beaches or other recreational areas? Um, Also, what are you seeing in terms of non-essential services with people who provide those services attempting to provide them um, sort of underground? And are you seeing more of your friends and family members deciding they're going to go ahead and go it, even though those services have been ordered uh, not to be offered? 866-893-KPECC, back in one minute on AirTalk. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. We're asking listeners to report on what they saw over the weekend. Are people's commitment to social distancing starting to break down as we're a month and a half into this thing? That's understandable. Uh, all of us are getting, um, you know, we're getting cabin fever. <laughs> Speaking for myself, I just, I, um, I, I can't wait to get out there with people again. Um, but at the same time, there's significant risk involved with that. So my question is sort of where are we at uh, societally in this process? 866-893-KPCC. Johnny uh, was at Venice Beach over the weekend. He said people were out partying, surfing, big groups of people, and a lot of young people out with no masks. And, um, of course, those beaches were supposed to be closed. Um, I was visiting my mother in Long Beach, and the beach there, there was no one on the beach. It was totally closed. They had the stairwells that go down to the beach, closed off. There were just a handful of people jogging or walking along uh, the pedestrian or bicycle path, but no one was around them as as they were doing it. Uh, David writes on the AirTalk Facebook page, don't the people complaining about the young people at the beach not socially distancing understand they're part of the problem? They, the older people, also went to the beach. David, don't you understand what he was saying was that older people were socially distancing and that it was their view that younger people were blowing off the requirements to keep physical distance. Yeah, people aren't part of the problem if they're observing the physical distancing. Those beaches were open. 
They were not closed. Talking about the Orange County and Ventura County beaches. 866-893-KPCC. Let's talk with uh, Iman in Irvine. Iman, you were at Newport as well? That is correct, Harari. It's a huge fan. I just want to let you know I'm always listening to 893. Appreciate uh, it. Our previous conversation, we had the doctor call from Newport Beach. Uh, the beaches were stacked, like over thousands of people in Newport Beach, and the people were hanging out having party, and they didn't wear that much masks, and there was no social distancing. So it's kind of, uh, uh, I, I believe if there is a, a closure for everybody, it has to be for everybody. The city of Huntington Beach, I forward, there's only places was open. It was in Newport Beach, and all the restaurants actually were open, too. So it was no social For takeout, right? They weren't, they weren't open to sit down. Right, right. That is uh, exactly that is correct. But I'm just saying, you know, I mean, at one point it's good, you know, to uh, have fun, but at the same time be protected, such as wearing your mask and then the wash distance. So Newport Beach, uh, Iman, is is apparently considering uh, closing the beach for next weekend. Do you think the city should? I think they should. They should. I mean, it has to be for everybody. So until everything is under control, they should close the beach, hopefully get everything get under control, and we all can have fun in all the beaches in Orange County and L.A. County. All right. Iman, I appreciate it very much. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Joe in West Hollywood seems to have the same problem comprehending the social distancing issue. He said, a question to people complaining about other people out and about, is there some reason you have a greater right to be out and use public spaces than others? What part of physical distancing is difficult to understand? I am completely baffled by this idea that going out somewhere publicly is all the same. It just doesn't matter. It's just all the same. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. RTB writes, closed the beach to non-residents. 866-893-5722. And I know that's what some of the beaches were looking at in closing their parking lots. Because then the idea was, you have to live within walking or biking distance if if you're going to go visit the beach and it keeps it for locals. Let's talk with John in West Hollywood. You're on air talk. Hey, Larry, I was, uh, took a little drive feeling stir crazy this weekend. Um, wanted to just go see the ocean, not, you know, yes, <laughs> make sure it's still there. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, on my way down from West Hollywood through Santa Monica, I noticed that, uh, there were parks that had, you know, playgrounds and exercise equipment all sort of caution taped off, but there were big grassy areas where people were hanging out um, and they were staying distant from each other. And, you know, I was happy to see that. All right. Good. Glad to hear about that. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Um, Alicia writes on the page, I think part of the problem is that not all of the beaches were open. I know people from L.A. and San Diego who went to Huntington this weekend because their local beaches weren't open. I think if we open all beaches and not parking lots, she writes, 
people could maintain a safe social distance and only go to their local beaches. I think it's a very interesting proposal, Alicia, and worth cities considering. Although I haven't heard anything about Los Angeles County beaches considering reopening, even for locals. Um, they appear to be committed at this point. They just think it's too dangerous and, and playing with fire to open up those beaches. 866-893-KPECC. Matt in Glendale, you're on Air Talk. I didn't get to go anywhere as fun as the beach, but I was at Home Depot this weekend. That can be fun. It was actually fun. I got a, a few painting uh, projects out of the way, but I was there yesterday and I noticed that the queue line was as long as it is for like Space Mountain at Disneyland. <laughs> and I was baffled. It, I, I yeah. think people are using the mask as, as kind of a, a pass to get closer. It was very hard to social distance. There was aisles, like you said, that your wife experienced were clustered with people trying to get the same stuff. So I, I try to do the best I can. Uh, kudos to the Home Depot employees who are trying to lock it down. And Yeah, thanks to them, yeah, for, for what they're doing. And Matt, I appreciate it. But, you know, talking about a case where it's impossible to keep social distance in some of those aisles and things like that, and then the risk, of course, goes up. And one of the things that we've heard from the physicians who we've had on our COVID-19 updates on AirTalk is that Keeping the minimum six-foot buffer is the most important, that masks or, or facial coverings are important for people when they go out, but that that is not in lieu of physical distancing, that the physical distancing is actually even more important. So you need to have both. You need to cover and you need to keep the distance. Covering your face does not provide the same degree of protection as being at least six foot distant from someone else. All right, and Justin and Tustin says, I see a lot of people posting on social media about going to the beach and it just encourages others to do it. Uh, we thank you, Justin, for sharing that. We have much more to come, second hour of Air Talk. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope that your weekend was a fulfilling one, even if it wasn't necessarily your ideal of what you'd like to do in this era of COVID-19. We still hopefully find fulfillment and pleasures with our family members and friends, or maybe pursuing things that we always thought when we had the time we'd get to and only now are are starting to uh, learn about or be able to practice. We're going to open up the hour looking at the restaurant business, and I'd really like to hear from you. It's absolutely important that we hear where you are as a restaurateur. If you closed um, once the order was issued uh, over five weeks ago and you haven't reopened, please share with us how you're doing um, what's going on? Did you get any of the government uh, money to help? If you're a restaurant that transitioned from uh, dining on site to to-go and curbside pickup, uh, delivery, I'd be interested in hearing how you're faring with that. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. And I understand this can be a painful thing to talk about when you've sunk your livelihood and um, more 16-hour days than you can count into building up your business and developing your relationship with your customers. 
I, I, even though I haven't been there, I can understand the magnitude of what this is like when you're, when you're seeing this falling apart. Um, but it's so important we hear from you when you describe what you're going through. And if yours is, is one of those stories where this is actually working out, you're keeping uh, much of your staff employed, many of your customers are still um, eating the food that you prepare, just taking it off-site, I'd like to hear 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Also with us is Small Business Commissioner for the City of Los Angeles, uh, Attorney Charles Liu. Charles, it's good to have you back with us. Larry, it's always good to speak with you. Thanks for having me. So what are you hearing from uh, from your clients and uh, from Los Angeles area businesses and, and, and the restaurants, what they're going through? Well, Larry, I, I wish I had better news to report to you, but uh, precarious at best. Uh, the PPP system crashed this morning about two minutes after launching. Oh. That was the system that was going to provide this additional $300-plus billion in, in truly emergency funds at this point to small businesses, as you know, many of which are restaurants. Uh, you know, it's precarious. It's, it's you know, they're, they're operating as best as they can. My clients and associates are, as you mentioned, the hardest working group of people that you could ever imagine. And they're doing every single thing, uh, creative, just ingenuity, just working their fingers to the bone, these ladies and gentlemen, and they're really trying. But um, unfortunately, and, and not to be a pessimist, but it really is a losing battle without this PPP and this EIDL money. And that's not to mention 90 days from now when these eviction moratoriums and these rent moratoriums, sales tax deferments, and these other programs that are in place, both private and public, uh, expire. So we're looking at a, a really... Uh, perfect storm 90 to 120 days from now, if if we can even get there. All right. Let's talk with Brianna in Highland Park. Brianna, what's what's the name of your restaurant? Homestate. Homestate. All right. And have you been able to keep open? Thankfully, we have. We have three locations. We did close one location in Playa Vista for five weeks, but thankfully we reopened this past weekend. Very good. And how have you uh, adapted your business model to this? Well, I was joking with somebody saying that we're really not a restaurant anymore. We're really more of a general store. And we also sell, happen to still sell some of the um, offerings, the taco offerings that we previously served. But we have completely pivoted our business model to serve the community's needs. We were hearing that people were having such a hard time finding basics like milk, eggs, butter, flour, we have access to those items through our vendors, and we, have, we, we saw an opportunity to meet the needs of the community and also help people avoid grocery stores if possible by coming to home state to securely purchase something, um, purchase some of the yeah. items from home state. So, Brianna, um, what, what percentage of your employees have you been able to keep on while doing this? We have not laid off one employee. Wow. Been able to keep all of our employees. That said, we have seen a decline in our workforce because of the nature of the, of the virus. We have people that have um, vulnerable family members and or who were college students at LMU. So there are, we have seen a decline in our workforce that we are 
we are actually about to put some ads out so we can build back what we need. Okay. Our demand is is going up, not down. Boy, that's good to hear. And and Brianna, did you get any PPP money to pay your employees? We did get, um, we did apply and were funded for the PPP last week, and we are currently figuring out what, how to best utilize that money. Congratulations. Brianna, thank you so much. So becoming a general store, as she said, uh, from being a restaurant previously, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. It's very important that we hear from restaurateurs here in Los Angeles and in surrounding communities how are you adapting to COVID-19? And are you able to, to get by by having your, your food uh, delivered or for curbside pickup? Or have you just closed your doors since the dine-in um, ban went into effect and you're just have hang on and hope that uh, you'll be able to open up as, as a dine-in restaurant again? 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Matt uh, D'Angelo-Antonio, our producer, said um, that he's been hearing from Postmates drivers that there are a number of restaurants that had closed uh, in the first month of this but have now started reopening uh, to do pickup or to do delivery. Uh, Those might be businesses that got PPP loans, so they're able to call their employees back to work. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. EGW shares a sign on a Dana Point restaurant on PCH. I saw yesterday it says, eat now or well, or we will both be starving. Um, yeah, this is so important, and uh, we're certainly in our household trying to support our local restaurants as best we can and and also um, you know stay safe, adhere to distancing. 866-893-KPECC. Frederick in downtown. Los Angeles. What's the name of, of your restaurant? The restaurant is called Pichun Bakery. Pichun Bakery. And and have you stayed open or closed? No, we, we shut down our operation on March 17th, uh, even though we, we tried to stay open for the first two days after uh, the mayor and the, and the governor uh, instruction to close uh, on March 15th. Uh, revenue was down 90%, and we tried for two days, but with the cost of the rent and the fixed charges that we have, it was not worth it uh, to stay open. You know, it was more like a financial burden. Uh, yeah, I can only imagine. So are you only going to reopen if if you can have your your customers on site? Uh, I'll try. I mean, if I have customers on site, uh, I will be able to reopen. I'm trying to reopen for May 15th. The problem is the unknown of the clientele, if they will be willing to come or uh, do a to-go uh, orders. Yeah. But the, the, the main problem for us is the rent. The rent, if we don't find any agreement, uh, fair agreement with landlords, the, the rent is such a big part of the charges 
for restaurants like us that we will not be able to 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 stay open. Sure, Frederick, I appreciate it. We wish you all the best, Pichun uh, French Bakery. Uh, of course, the other side is that you know the property owner, the landlord. Uh, it's not as though there's a bunch of people in line to move into a restaurant space to open it if 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 you close down and withdraw. Frederick in downtown L.A. Uh, let's talk with Johnny in Chinatown. Uh, Johnny, what's your restaurant? Uh, the restaurant name is Pearl River Deli. All right, very good. And are you still open? Uh, yes, yes, we are uh, open for takeout only. All right. And I understand you just opened your restaurant just a few weeks before this all happened? Uh, yes, unfortunately. Oh, gosh. Uh, terrible. Um, so, uh, but how have you been able to adapt to this? I think uh, I was lucky in that we just we took over a very small spot, and our footprint is very low, so our rents, our overheads are it's very low. We don't need that many employees to operate, so we've been able to, and we were already kind of mainly focused on uh, takeout food in general because we only have ten seats for dining anyway. Yeah. And and so, how, what percentage of of sales are you doing compared to when you first opened? Uh, even though you were new, I mean, the, I I want to say revenue wise, drop. I think we've seen about a ten to fifteen percent drop. If, okay, so you're still you're still having most of the customers showing up to get food. Yes, uh, I think. We were very lucky to have a very loyal and supportive uh, customer base. All right, Johnny, I appreciate it. We wish you all the best, and nice to hear that you've adapted, particularly for a new restaurant, uh, Johnny of uh, Pearl River Deli in Chinatown. Uh, Let's talk with Darren in Eagle Rock. Darren, what are your restaurants? So I run Muddy Paw Coffee. I actually have two of them. One is in Silver Lake and one is in Eagle Rock. Fortunately, I've been able to keep both open um, to establish some normalcy. And literally, we haven't had to lay anybody off, but we're grateful to all our clients that come in. Eagle Rock's been tougher because we're newer there. Um, but, you know, everything, we, we give we give money to animal rescue. So our, our shops have been built to have flow through them. So we've been able to establish change to COVID-19 to flow our customer through the same way we dealt with animals. Very good. And um, I, I have you applied for the PPP funds to handle yeah, we, your payroll? We, we did apply for the PPP, and we were fortunate enough to get that last week as well. And we're learning Very how good. we can apply that. And keep, you know, I've been grateful to keep every employee on that can work. Uh, like your other listener, we some of our employees are out due to their living with uh, people that are cancer survivors or, you know, they have an older grandmother, then they don't want to come in. And that's completely understandable at this time. All right, Darren, congratulations that you've adapted, that you're doing well, been able to keep your staff. That's very good to hear. 866-893-KPECC. You can also share on the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. JSK says California's restaurants deliver home meals for seniors. The governor announced this last week. Pays $66 a day to restaurants for three delivered meals. Is that a viable business model for some restaurants? Charles Liu, do you you think that that is going to be appealing to some restaurants? Absolutely. That's an incredible move by the governor, and it could really be a lifeline to some restaurants. At $66 for three meals, 
uh, $22 a meal, certainly with some cost-effective structuring. That could be the, the adrenaline shot that some of these struggling restaurants need to just keep the doors open and then reassess how they move forward. So it's fantastic. Charles, what are you also hearing about the uh, landlord-renter um, relationship here? Because you know, on the one hand, the property owners, they've got mortgages that they have to pay. And, um, you know, that this puts them in a bind if the restaurant owner can't pay. On the other hand, they're not a line of people waiting to come in and start paying rent on the space. So, you know, what, how are those relationships from what you're hearing with your clients uh, evolving? Yeah, I, I would say that especially in the beginning, and still I'm hearing really, really positive stories of landlords working with tenants very much in in a partnership uh, strategy and a a partnership feel. So I would say the initial response was we're we're all in this together. Uh, There's certainly been some fraying of that in the last probably two to three weeks. We've got definitely an increase in eviction calls and and unlawful detainer calls and queries as to exactly how this eviction moratorium works. Is it an affirmative defense? Is it an ultra-absolute defense? So some very legal-specific calls. But I would say for the most part, there has been an air of we're in this together. And there's certainly been, from my experience, some some very favorable uh, treatment given by the landlords to the tenants. So I That's would, nice to overall, hear. Overall, it's, it's been a very well, amicable relationship. If um, under, under the city of Los Angeles law, does the tenant restaurant have to show its financial hardship or have to you know, share with the landlord whether they got PPP funding to keep them afloat? Or um, is, is the eviction ban apply regardless uh, of the restaurant having to prove anything? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's something that we're, we're hearing and dealing with a lot. And again, I kind of mentioned it briefly just a few moments ago. It's actually an, an affirmative defense. So basically, the landlord could file this unlawful detainer action. So the landlord could drag the, the tenant into court and essentially say, here's the reasons that you're being evicted for the non-payment of rent, et cetera. And then what would be required at that point would be for the tenant to raise this as an affirmative defense to say, essentially, I was materially impacted economically by the COVID-19 disaster, and here's exactly why, and here is the the reasons that I was simply unable to pay rent. All right. Uh, Hank in Pasadena, I'm almost out of time. Just real quickly, I understand you're a real estate attorney with restaurant clients or other commercial tenants. So what are you seeing? Uh, Initially, the first month, basically, let's see how it goes. No problem. After that period, it seems as if there was no end in sight. Uh, We've approached several of the landlords, and we've done some creative things. On some, we basically had a no rent until we can reopen kind of a policy. Wow. And on others, we've actually gotten the tenants completely out of the lease. Um, Those are for restaurants that just feel they can't reopen. Or, or businesses that cannot open. Both. Right. And the thing, the big issue in my perspective is, is that the landlords, although they, of course, have obligations too, are in the position where they can insure against loss of rents. Tenants cannot. So, how, okay, how can they insure against loss of rent? You mean like formal insurance? Yes. Okay. 
standard part. In other words, if you owned a rental uh, unit and the place burned down, your your insurance most likely is going to pay your loss of rents for some period of time. The same is true in a commercial setting. Yeah, okay, and that this would qualify. Charles Liu, um, as an attorney, if, if you heard about that, would insurance cover the property owner for this? I, I have, and I believe that uh, he is right. I believe that is that is providing they have that specific coverage that would, in fact, cover it. Now, the bigger problem that the insurance companies and the the restaurateurs and also the landlords are dealing with right now is the applicability of the insurance, and that's a huge yeah. that we're dealing with right now with the business interruption insurance. So again, now you're asking individuals to go back and and present these claims and hope that they're honored. These uh, insurance policies are honored. So. Uh, definitely a tricky, tricky situation. Yeah, because with the business interruption claim, my understanding is that most of the insurers are refusing to pay on that. Hank, I appreciate your call. Charles Liu, small business commissioner for the city of L.A., L.A.-based attorney, represents uh, many uh, restaurant and uh, business clients. Thank you so much for being with us again. And just want to say to all of you that are in the food service and restaurant business, our thanks to you and our appreciation for providing uh, your your services. And for those of you that have had to shut down bef- uh, because of this, you're in very good company. Our thoughts are with you. We'll be back in just one minute on Air Talk. Governor Newsom is being lobbied hard about uh, an order that would make it presumptive that any employee who is an essential employee who gets COVID-19 is eligible for workers' comp. Currently, under workers' comp, the employee has to show that whatever illness or injury was suffered happened during the course of work, uh, that it couldn't be something that happened when the employee is off the job. But what labor organizations are urging the governor to mandate is that if someone is an essential worker is out there working and then ends up getting COVID-19, that they would be granted workers' compensation without having to prove that it was exposure on the job that led to their illness. Joining us is Mitch Steiger, legislative advocate for the California Labor Federation. Uh, Mr. Steiger, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Why should the governor issue this order? Why is it important for state employees? Well, the issue is that without a presumption, workers will find it, workers who've gotten COVID-19 at work will find it difficult, if not impossible, to actually get medical care and indemnity benefits into the workers' compensation system. Our system has always really struggled with occupational illness. As you mentioned, the burden of proof is there on the worker to prove that something did happen at work. And depending on the circumstances, that, that can sometimes be a difficult thing to do, no matter how true it is. And given that these workers are out there literally risking their lives every day to take care of us, to keep our society functioning. We think the least we can do is make sure that they're taken care of when they do get the disease at work, and that's why we're fighting for it. Would there be some sort of a compromise where um, that the employee could be queried about whether they lived with someone who was diagnosed with COVID-19 or, um, you know, what when they were away from the job, what potential sources of exposure there might be so that that could be considered in case the um, exposure did happen happen off the job? 
A disputable or rebuttable presumption like the one you're describing would still be a major victory for workers. But the issue is that we would still see a lot of workers spending a lot of time in the court process, facing a lot of delays, facing in some cases denials when they did get it at work. And we would deal with all the costs associated with that. Another reason that we think the presumption makes sense is that actually most of the money in our workers' comp system, about 53 cents of every dollar, goes to things that aren't injured workers, goes to claims administration, goes to insurance companies and attorneys. And the more that we open the door to litigation and frictional costs associated with COVID-19 claims, the worse that problem gets. Now, uh, uh, critics of, of the governor issuing this order, businesses say the problem is that this would cause premiums under workers' comp to skyrocket because if every essential employee who gets COVID-19 is immediately eligible for workers' comp, the payouts are going to be so great that then the premiums are are going to skyrocket. That's going to have an effect on businesses and their employees. Your response to that argument? Well, we don't think premiums would skyrocket. When you look at the estimates that came from the state compensation insurance fund, our presumption that they've already adopted, they guessed about uh, $115 million. They've got about 11% of the market. And so, you know, if we figured in the $1 to $2 billion range out of a $23 billion system, we think that's something that, that would be pretty manageable if the presumption did look anything like what SCIF did adopt. But the really important thing to keep in mind is that if we don't do a presumption, if these claims don't go through the workers' comp system, it's not like they go away. We're just dumping them back on the worker in terms of their own health care plan if they have health insurance at all. And they also wouldn't be getting the permanent disability benefits that they would through the workers' compensation system if they have some sort of permanent lung scarring. And if, God forbid, they do die on the job, their family wouldn't be getting the death benefits. And so their family would just be left with essentially nothing when the primary breadwinner dies. And so for those reasons, we think it's really important to keep them in the workers' compensation system and to remember that these costs are going to be there. The question is just what system is going to deal with them and who's going to pay for them. We're talking uh, with Mitch Steiger, legislative advocate for the California Labor Federation, which is advocating that Governor Newsom issue an order that any essential employee who contracts COVID-19 be covered by workers' compensation. Also with us, president of the Valley Industry and Commerce Association, one of the organizations that signed a letter to Governor Newsom uh, asking that uh, the governor immunize uh, all private entities and their workers providing critical services, goods, and facilities. Stuart Waldman. Mr. Waldman, it's good to have you with us again. Why do you think uh, that the governor should issue this immunization and should not issue uh, a presumption of workers' comp coverage? Well, the idea of a presumption, it states that the employee received it at work. Um, What Mitch is uh, proposing um, does not include a, a rebuttable uh, presumption. It does not include any uh, defense from the employer. Uh, I spoke uh, to an employer today who asked me what he should do because uh, two of his employees went to Newport Beach yesterday, and uh, he was frustrated that they put themselves in danger. And he was asking me, could he send those employees home? Can he send them away without having to pay them. Uh, I think when you add increased costs and you look at a situation where you do not know what the employee is doing in their personal life, you brought up a simple situation. What if somebody 
who is an essential worker lives with someone who has COVID-19 but continues to go to work. Uh, that is a very real possibility. And you, employers cannot control their employees when they are not working. Uh, so there is no way to tell where an employee got. What, what about Mitch's argument that um, this would so tie the employee up in the workers' comp process and, you know, b- because it really, at root, it would be almost impossible to determine where the exposure came from. You'd, you'd have, you know, maybe it's more likely it happened on the job, maybe it's more likely it happened at home or at Newport Beach or wherever. But since it's so difficult to definitively determine and you've got uh, an employee who's potentially vulnerable and sick here, um sort of argument is the preponderance of that, it's not fair to put it on the employee. Well, um, that assumes that the employer fights the claim. Uh, There are many employers that if the situation arised and they knew, in fact, that the employee did get sick at work, they were able to trace that, they were able to figure that out, they would not necessarily fight that claim. Uh, so we're talking about a very small amount of claims that would be fought. All right. Ms. Steiger, you want to respond to that? Sure. Well, I think we would say if it's a very small amount of claims that, that would be fought, then the, the impact of the system should be pretty minimal if most of them are going to be accepted. And in response to the hypothetical and anecdotal evidence that's been brought up about if a worker did this or engaged in this kind of activity, There are going to be just as many, if not more, workers who were following the shelter-in-place order, haven't been exposing themselves to any unnecessary risks, but are there every day at work doing the things that need to be done to to keep us safe and to keep society going. And in those cases, we don't want to see those workers have to spend a great deal of time and a great deal of suffering in the workers' compensation system trying to get the benefits that, that they deserve, because our experience has been with other kinds of occupational disease and illness that that's usually the case. These are very often denied, and workers are subjected to some pretty brutal and pretty adversarial tactics in court to try to get the benefits that they deserve. And again, you don't see any compromise to where if the worker is able to show that she or he, um, you know, people attest to the fact that um, they didn't put themselves in any risky uh, position, weighed against the fact there were multiple sources for exposure uh, in doing the essential work that they did. I mean, that would seem that would seem to be, at least on the face of it, uh, fairly straightforward. But you're saying there's just no way to contain that. Basically, yeah, it's it's just been our experience that any sort of open door to that sort of thing, you are going to see delays and denials in the system. Now, again, it would still be a major step forward and still be a big victory for workers. But in addition to still leaving the option open for a lot of these delays and denials that we don't want to see these workers have to suffer through, it would be a lot of money lost in the system to friction and litigation and claims administration, that sort of thing. Um, we don't want to see that happen. Okay, Those workers have to go through that. Stuart Waldman, quick closing comments, sir. Yeah, the uh, increased costs are estimated to be about an additional $33.6 billion annually uh, on these claims. That's a lot of money. The workers' comp system is already broken. It's filled with fraud and misuse, uh, and the delays are because people are abusing the system. Uh, So let's not add something else that's going to increase costs for businesses and keep in mind, a lot of businesses aren't going to survive. So, you know, let's try and make sure that the businesses that do are able to run efficiently and 
provide jobs. All right. I want to thank you both. That's Stuart Waldman, president of the Valley Industry and Commerce Association, Mitch Steiger, a legislative advocate for the California Labor Federation. We're talking about whether the current rules for workers' comp should be changed uh, as a result of the circumstances of COVID-19 and the risks that essential employees are taking on in their jobs. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Coming up, our political analysts. We certainly have a lot to talk about this week. We'll hear from them in just 90 seconds. Listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. So appreciate you starting the work week with me, even if that work week is working from home. Uh, for those who find themselves furloughed and uh, without a job right now, uh, boy, we are with you in spirit and we will get through this as incredibly challenging as this is from a health and financial standpoint. We turn our attention now to the latest in politics. Joining us this week, our associate dean and associate professor at Pepperdine University School of Public Policy, Michael Shires, and senior advisor for Emerge America, a national organization that identifies and trains Democratic women who want to run for political office, Amanda Renteria. Uh, my Amanda, great to have you both with us. We appreciate it very much. Let's first start on on where we are with the stimulus packages, nearly $500 billion signed by the president on Friday. But it it looks, uh, Dean Shires, like it's going to be um, a huge fight if there is a fourth uh, one of these. Well, you know, I mean, Democrats are, are starting to get some pushback from some of the constituent groups that, you know, they're not getting enough in these in these proposals. Uh, you know, I mean, this isn't a, a, a time for partisan politics, and I think that's hurt some of the initiatives in the early negotiations. So they've been a little hesitant. But, you know, this next one, especially if it centers around infrastructure, infrastructure is a place where, you know, they drew lines early, you know, over the last three years to make sure that Trump didn't get a win in that space. And so it's going to be hard to overcome some of that inertia. Uh, Amanda Rancheria, what do you anticipate we'll see? You know, I think as every day goes by, the intensity of the outcomes of what's happening on in COVID it really does make the negotiation a lot harder. The other thing I'll say is you're starting to see coalitions build outside of the Senate and the House, which means in this next package, there'll be more voices as this negotiation happens, because there'll be real data on the ground of what people, what these states and localities need. And you are beginning to see groups outside come together to say, we need more investment here or more assistance there. And that does make the conversation a lot more difficult, not to mention we're getting closer to November. And there's no doubt that election politics start to seep into these negotiations as well. Now, states have the ability to increase taxes. Uh, it's my understanding that you know filing for bankruptcy uh, would be a very difficult thing for a state to do because of taxation authority. Why should the federal government, Amanda, uh, provide financial assistance to states and cities when they have the ability to come up with revenue? What you'll see is states are doing everything they can just to manage where they are now. One of the big questions about it is what's the not only what will be the moral um, process of that. I, I worked in the Senate when the auto industry 
went on or went in through its recovery process. And I got to tell you, the complication of bankruptcy on how you manage that kind of process would certainly send things into chaos, not to mention right now we need to be unifying and have governors and mayors and the federal government working together. And I think the push to bankruptcy for each of these states would really cause a firestorm and a complication that becomes very difficult for the federal government to manage and not the kind of partnership where you can utilize state resources right now and work together in a healthy way to figure out this crisis that we've all never experienced in our lifetime. Uh, Mike, I, I hear about bankruptcy, but I always thought the reason states couldn't get out from under their pension obligations and restructure those was that that avenue was not available to them. Well, and that's kind of been the consensus for the last you know twenty years of consideration on this. And I, I mean, you know, imagine a federal judge because bankruptcy basically would put a judge in charge of the state's finances. And I mean, imagine the challenges of separation of powers when you have the judiciary telling the legislature how to allocate the money and the governor how to spend it. I mean, there, it would be a huge constitutional crisis that would obviously have to go to the Supreme Court for resolution. And do you think that to avoid all that, there's a case to be made for the federal government helping to backfill the lost revenue for states and cities? Well, I think backfilling revenue is going to be highly controversial. I mean, you're going to ask, you know, 38 mostly red states to pay for 12 uh, mostly blue states. And so, I mean, I think the politics in that are going to unwind all by itself. But I think on top of that, you have this, you know, every government in America is going to have to rethink how business is done at all levels. Um, I think the feds are already providing a lot of money in terms of the health, public health response. Um, but, you know, to actually just start handing checks to state governments and saying, here, we're going to bail Illinois or California out when they were they had already dug big holes for themselves really is going to have some uphill politics. Well, California actually had a surplus, though. California was in quite good fiscal shape. And then with COVID-19 expenses and revenue cratering, now California finds itself in the opposite position. So it's not like California was financially mismanaged before this, Mike. Well, it's not a function of mismanagement, but I will point out that every single state and local Government, well, the state government in every locality was looking at the pension obligations that were coming up. And even with a rapidly rising stock market, those obligations were eating into their operational revenues by 10 or 20 percent. So, I mean, you know, fiscal mismanagement in one year, no. But in the long term, we just didn't have a fiscal plan that was going to meet the commitments that we'd made publicly. All right. Uh, We're also talking with our political experts about the federal deficit, which, uh, according to the General Accounting Office, has uh, reached our Congressional Budget Office, excuse me, has reached uh, dizzying heights. The U.S. deficit will mushroom to three point seven trillion dollars fiscal 2020. And um, the deficit for the next fiscal year estimated to be two point one trillion. That's double the previous CBO estimate. Amanda Renteria, um, I mean, it's looking like the future generation is going to have to pick up the cost of this. At what point do politicians say, yeah, this is a current crisis, but we we can't just keep spending and, and have people, the next generation, pay it all off? That's right. And you heard a lot of these arguments as this administration came in and added to the drastic shrinking of revenues by a twin um, tax cut that folks were talking about before we we had this crisis at hand. And so the idea that 
not only did we already start with shrinking shrinking revenue line, but this will only add to it. And there's no doubt that as we think through generations going forward, it does become difficult to figure out how we're going to get out of that hole, not affecting the generations uh, going forward. And I think this is why every single new coronavirus package relief will get more difficult because those spending numbers begin to become a deeper and deeper hole for everyone to figure out. Amanda, I wanted to ask you also about President Trump's news conferences uh, that have been so long with uh, the health experts doing each day. He stopped doing them over the weekend after Thursdays, uh, the president musing about whether uh, disinfectant uh, could potentially be injected and would be part of of some sort of a treatment for COVID-19. the president's supporters, apparently many of his his aides, advisors, have asked him to stop doing the briefings. They perceive it as hurting his uh, ability to be reelected because of how he's conducted himself. Um, do you think that that um, it would be best for the president to just stop doing these? I think one mark of a failure of leadership is not understanding the power of one's voice combined with the careful messaging that's needed right now because of where our country is. It can't be um, overstated that the country is hanging on every single word and looking for miracles, looking for leadership, especially if you're if you know of a family member or a friend who is sitting on a ventilator right now or who who's in ICU right now. And I think the idea that when you see this president go out and talk to people, it doesn't feel like he understands that the, that's the gravity of his words. And in fact, we're seeing that when he says the things that he does, it really truly does affect people's lives. And you are beginning to see his aides, um, all those around him say, wait a second, how do we contain this? How do we make sure we have the kind of language and messaging that really understands the power of that podium? And so uh, it's not surprising to me that we have seen that over the last couple of days. And I do hope that their words work so that we can save lives. Wow. Amanda, just as you were answering that question that I asked, I just got a message from NPR that the White House press briefing that had been canceled for today is now back on in the Rose Garden. So who knows what's behind that, but uh, there will be be a a news conference, at least as of now, scheduled for 2 o'clock Pacific in the Rose Garden. Michael Shires, Pepperdine University, your thoughts about uh, politically how this is playing out for the president? Well, I I mean, you know, politically, the right answer for President Trump is somewhere between what he's been doing, which is daily, and, you know, what Barack Obama did, which was almost never. I I mean, you know, there there is a definite need for access to information and transparency. Um, you know, whether it's the interaction, whether it's the president's words or how the media and he interact, either way, those words are getting uh, are not having a positive impact all the time. And, you know, those are things that the president should be attentive to and make sure that his messaging um, are around things you know, where he is providing that leadership and hope. I think by and large, most Americans, if you look at the polling, think he's done an OK job with an ugly situation. Um, but at the same time, you know, he needs to constantly be mindful that, yes, every word matters and that, you know, especially when you have a confrontational relationship with those who are conveying your words, um, you have to be even more careful about how you deliver your message. Yeah. And I th- and I think the polling that I saw and I think it was the Pew poll said that 
two-thirds of Americans were not happy with his administration's initial response to COVID-19. But I guess I wonder, wouldn't it make more sense for the president if he's going to be part of these news conferences, just get up, say a few words, um, and then get off and have his public health people get up and have them take the questions. But he seems to want to put himself as the primary figure in those news conferences. I think he feels a responsibility to communicate with the American public, and sometimes that means he probably spends a little bit more time answering questions than he should. Um, I think at the same time, you know, we have to be careful. We don't say, well, we don't want these, and, and then the you know, complaint is going to be the other way. I mean, if you look at the initial response and kind of the failure of the CDC tests and all that, possibly uh, his closing China wasn't popular. His closing Europe wasn't popular. Uh, by many of the same folks who say he didn't move fast enough now. So, I mean, there's kind of this bizarre inconsistency amongst all of this. Um, This is a crisis, and we all need to pull together. I mean, even President Obama stood behind President Bush during the financial collapse in 2008. And I think that, you know, this is a time for us to pull together. And if campaign politics sort of insert themselves boldly in the midst of this, I think it's going to burn whoever does it. And and you're absolutely right. Democrats were critical of those uh, barriers against people coming into the country that the president enacted. But on the other hand, uh, there were certainly plenty of things that the administration with the Centers for Disease Control could have implemented earlier that they didn't do uh, that are now uh, the subject of criticism here. We'll continue our conversation with our political analyst, Michael Shires of Pepperdine, Amanda Renteria of Emerge America. You're listening to Air Talk on KPCC. Back in one minute. It's Hair Talk on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. In case you missed my interview with Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti in the first hour, it's at kpcc.org. A chance for you to hear what I asked the mayor about COVID-19 related public policies as well as the massive budget challenge that the mayor and the city is facing right now. Our political analysts, Amanda Renteria and Michael Shires, are with us right now. Let's turn our attention to the presidential race, where presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden has said that he will choose a woman as his running mate. There have been some African-American leaders who've been pushing for Georgia's Stacey Abrams to be the pick. And Abrams herself, in fact, has um, been making the case for why she would be a strong choice. Amanda Renteria, um, it's a little unconventional to have someone who almost certainly will be on that list, in essence, publicly lobbying for that job and making the case. Do you think that that helps her or hurts her? I think it is absolutely consistent with who and what Stacey Abrams have, has always been about. She recognizes that she comes up the political world in a different kind of fashion. And when you do that, you do have to tell your story in a different way. You do have to make sure that you're getting out there to talk about the qualifications you have had. 
Um, there aren't a lot of women of color who have been in this position. And so, in fact, it does require what we know about women running, women of color running specifically, is that they do have to find their ways to tell their story, especially when they're, it's not the traditional route that maybe most folks have thought about. And that truly is what leadership's about. It's being able to tell your story and making sure it match, matches for the moment. And I thought she actually did a pretty great job at doing that this weekend. You know, and you raised something I hadn't really even thought of, that um, Amy Klobuchar and so many of the other women that have been talked about, they probably, because of their elective positions, have an ability for their people to talk to Biden's people in a way that maybe is more difficult for Stacey Abrams. And I hadn't thought about that issue. Uh, Mike Shires, your, your thoughts about uh, her her tactic here? Well, I mean, you know, you, you've got to ask for the job. And if you if people aren't talking to you, then you have to make your make yourself higher profile. And that's what she's been doing. Um, you know, I mean, Kamala Harris is obviously you know, trying out for the job as well as Klobuchar. I, I mean, you know, President uh, Vice President Biden had uh, said he's going to pick a woman. He hasn't said a woman of color yet. Um, and so that conversation will be open. He's going to have to do a lot of math about what a particular vice presidential candidate will bring to his ticket. You know, whether it'll delete, uh, deliver a swing state or not. Um, you know, whether Abrams, for example, can deliver Georgia, which would be a really long shot, I think, in a general election. But those are the that's the kind of math more likely she might help him in Florida. But that's the kind of math he's going to have to be doing as he thinks about this candidate. Uh, with Joe Biden, there's been a criticism from conservative media that Democrats have been inconsistent or hypocritical in how they went after Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and uh, have not uh, made more of a deal about the allegation against Joe Biden by someone uh, who worked in his office more than a decade ago. Uh, Do you think that they are similar circumstances, Mike Shires, and should be considered similarly? Well, the allegations are real and they need to be investigated. I think these, you know, this is a horrible set of allegations. And if it's true, then there need to be consequences for it. Um, and I think every victim you know, has a right to you know, have their claims uh, uh, investigated in a fair process. Um, I think this hurts Biden a lot. This may cost him the White House. I mean, everybody wants to say, no, he's the nominee, he's the nominee. But if he shows weakness and this continues to fester as an issue uh, in the general election, this could hurt him a lot. I mean, especially, I mean, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but if a Trump were to suddenly switch to a Nikki Haley as a vice president, um, you could easily see... Um, this redefining the landscape a lot. So I think these allegations are the big issue for the Biden campaign. He needs to be kind of aggressive about addressing him and putting him to rest. Okay, Amanda, real quickly, we're almost out of time. But, you know, these issues did not derail President Trump's campaign when he faced allegations and from multiple women. Do you think this hurts Biden? You know, this is exactly the kind of conversation that for any woman hearing this, and hearing that we're somehow going to erase everything Trump has said and all the allegations around Trump, it is maddening and frustrating. Do I think that we should hear from or investigate any allegations as they relate to Biden? Of course, in the same fashion that we need to really take seriously everything that has happened um, with Trump. And, um, and I look forward to that conversation as well.
All right. I want to thank you both very much for being with us. Amanda Renteria of Emerge America, Mike Shires, Pepperdine University School of Public Policy, where he's associate dean and associate professor. Perhaps the unlikeliest top 10 hit of 1965's British Invasion, Ian Whitcomb's You Turn Me On. I remember laughing with my second grade friends about Ian's breathless vocal. Little did I know 25 years later he'd be my KPCC colleague with the long-running Ian Whitcomb show on every weeknight. Well, Ian died just over a week ago. He'd had a series of health challenges and died of natural causes at the age of 78. I experienced the full breadth of Ian's talent from his early hit to hearing him entertain audiences nightly on KPCC with his encyclopedic knowledge of ragtime, Tin Pan Alley, and early blues. His live performances on ukulele of ragtime and music hall songs, along with his wife and later his caregiver, Regina Whitcomb. Ian was also a prolific author of books on music history, like After the Ball. He reflected on Southern California and his experience of it in the novels Lotus Land and Resident Alien. His love of Los Angeles, early 20th century music, and his radio listeners came through in all his wonderful storytelling. One of my favorite memories of spending time with Ian was when I had him over to watch his 1965 TV performances on teen music shows like Shindig. His hilarious commentary on what was going on behind the scenes of the shows left me with wonderful memories. Well, we've lost a musical and radio original in Ian Whitcomb as well as a good friend to many. I last saw Ian late last year at a rehabilitation center where he was recovering from a stroke. And I walked slowly beside him as he did strenuous physical therapy, as hard as Ian was working. He was still asking me about how I was doing and entertaining me with his thoughts as he worked hard. It's a great final memory for me of someone I really appreciate. All of us at KPCC offer our deepest condolences to Ian's wife, Regina Whitcomb, and Ian's many friends. Every Saturday night they were starting to roll. Then on Sunday morning they come staggering home. On this island live wild men with cannibal trimmings. And where there are wild men, there must be wild women. So where did Robinson Crusoe go? With Friday on Saturday night, we can hear to you. That's Ian Whitcomb from all of us at Air Talk. Have a good afternoon.